This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the final How To Academy podcast of 2021. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of How To Academy's curators and the producer of this series. Our guest on this episode is model, entrepreneur, and New York Times bestselling author Emily Ratajkowski. Her debut essay collection, My Body, is one of the most talked about books of the year. And she joined journalist and podcaster Pandora Sykes live on stage in London to tell us more. Thank you so much uh, to everyone for coming. And thank you the most to Emily for joining me on stage in London to talk about my body. My body is a searing, revelatory and eminently readable collection of essays about beauty, power, abuse, money and motherhood. There is so much to dig into, but let's start with the writing itself. What made you want to write the book? Uh, You know, I didn't think I was writing a book when I first started writing, which really helped me be very honest and sort of curious about my own experiences. I started writing because I knew that there were personal experiences I had a lot of shame around that I felt didn't line up with my politics um, and my ideas around feminism and power, and there was no way to sort of get to the bottom of those ideas and those contradictions and um, just wanting to have a better understanding of of my own experience. Um, so I started writing in the notes app on my phone. And then so many people start writing books with that app, apparently. Yeah, well, because I think there's something that makes it feel a lot less in- intimidating, the kind of blank page thing. And um, so once I would have a really excessively long note, I would transfer it to docs and then sort of be like, okay, I think this is an essay. Um, and eventually I had enough of them that, you know, I started to consider it a, a book that I might publish. So when you had your essay published in The Cut, which is obviously the first time people knew that you were writing. Had you already written a bunch of other essays at that point? Yeah, so I had essentially written sort of a rough draft of the book. It was about 50,000 words, um, and that was one of the essays inside of the book proposal. And my lit agent, um, who I just started to work with, said, you know, I think this might be worth publishing one of these ahead of looking for a publisher. Um, And they selected that one. And I was totally terrified before it was published. I, you know, had never sort of shared myself with the world in that way. And um, yeah, it was really amazing to see the reaction. Yeah, I had a huge reaction. I remember, I'm pretty sure it was, there was a lot of trending on Twitter Mm. definitely the day it came out (laughs) I want to go back to the very beginning before you became the powerhouse that you are now as an only child in a house with no walls Mm. quite literally your father built a house with walls that only partially went up to the ceiling and I was so fascinated to imagine I've got your whole house in my head Growing up with no boundaries had a profound effect on you. Children who grow up in homes like mine oscillate between feeling special and feeling alone. How much do you think that lack of boundaries, for example, you write that you could hear everything in the house, fed into the career you have now of feeling both special and alone? So that essay is called The Woozies, and it's sort of related to body and space and architecture and place and Um, the idea of home and sort of my mom's ideas around home and 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 the physical kind of soul and her body and her battle with illness. And, you know, the house that I grew up in always 
it's just I can be there right now. It feels so visceral, the memory of, of my home. And it wasn't until I went into editing it, and I sort of wasn't sure if I was going to include the essay in the book because, um, you know, I was thinking about my body and how does this relate to sort of the ideas in the other essays. And I wasn't sure if I could find it other than the connection to my mother's body. Um, but once I realized that I'd written so many pages of description of the home, I understood that I was actually trying to get at something that I hadn't realized, which was about boundaries. And, um, you know, as an only child, I don't want to speak for anyone else's experience, but an only child in a home like that and in a dynamic like that, you definitely sort of have this sense of both being very special and kind of powerful um like your emotions and you you can at least in my in my family unit because of the lack of boundaries there was this sort of like power I felt I had almost an, an adult quality and yeah when you when I saw that that was one of the questions you were thinking about asking definitely feeling special and alone and this kind of weird thing I think it's been a continuation in my adult life, but also boundaries. I mean, I just didn't really understand saying no, asserting myself in the way that I've learned to now. But I think going into my profession with that very particular kind of upbringing and family dynamic and even physical space, I think it definitely impacted my, my sort of 20s and up until relatively recently. I, de- I found that one of the most interesting essays because of that. It made me think a lot about intimacy and Mm. kind of the almost false intimacy that you get from social media or you feel like you're getting from social media Mm -hmm. when you scroll through which obviously has has been a large part of your work but I want to come back to that not being feeling like you were able to say no a bit later and go back to your mother who you briefly mentioned Um, you're very honest in the book about how you grew up feeling like and being encouraged to see beauty as currency. Mm -hmm. You write that your mother would recount stories about men noticing you and that now you post pictures on Instagram that testify to your beauty. How much did your mother's preoccupation with beauty and the beauty of women generally feed into your career, which is obviously based very much on how you look? So, you know, my mom, um, her, I think this is one of the things when you get older, you sort of realize that your parents are these really complicated people with their own childhoods and their own families. And, you know, I try to to include a little bit of that in the book. She had grown up in a family where, you know, her father had said, you should never say thank you if someone tells you you're beautiful or compliments you on the way you look um, because you haven't done anything to deserve it. Um, So she had a lot of shame around her beauty. And I think having a daughter, she didn't want me to have that experience. So a lot of her feeling was, I want my daughter to celebrate the way she looks. I don't want her to feel embarrassed or ashamed. And, you know, obviously, eventually, my mom was a English professor. My dad was a painter. They kind of understood that it was really nice to have a, a way of making income um, that wasn't related to maybe your passion, like writing or art. And, you know, she felt like modeling was a really incredible opportunity to maybe pay for my college education. Um, so, you know, I think that. I was really interested in that essay not to kind of say like, oh, my mom put too much emphasis on beauty, but to rather explore kind of this one moment in memory I had as a young person of praying to be beautiful because it really struck me that, you know, being six or seven and being a little girl, there's so many things you could pray for in life, happiness, whatever, you know, being really smart and that I felt like being beautiful would, you know, really give me a good life. And I, I was interested in, in exploring the ideas Kind of what do women pass on to their daughters? What do mothers teach us about how to be a woman in the world and to to deal with the male gaze? And you know how oftentimes it is a response to their own experience. And you know now as a parent myself, I think about it a lot because it's tricky. I think even the most well-meaning parents can implement ideas that they don't necessarily intend to. Absolutely, and I think it was really admirable to write with such honesty, especially from someone who is already well-known. I wondered, how was it writing 
about lots of people who are very close to you. So, you know, experiences that you've had with your husband or with your mother or with your father. Did you have conversations beforehand saying, look, I'm going to be super honest in this book? Or did you kind of just slide them pages gingerly and be like, (laughs) how did that sort of go? Or are you still waiting to have those conversations now? (laughs) I mean, I think those conversations, particularly with my parents, are just going to be ongoing. Like, you know, I feel like... And the more I evolve and the older they get, like our relationship continues to change. And like the memories that we have of my childhood are different essentially. And, you know, them kind of reckoning with me as an adult and now a mother and a writer. But, uh, no, I mean, I think that when I was writing, I didn't try to think about that too much because I don't think I would have been able to be honest um, because I would have been too concerned. But when I was editing, that's when I started to, you know, and really had kind of final drafts. That's when I started to share them, particularly with my parents. My husband was sort of along for the ride because he was there (laughs) every day while I was writing. Um, But, um, you know, I think, yeah, it's, it's really tricky writing about people that are close to you. I think that I understood that this was a moment for me to clarify my reality and to have just say this is my memory and hold it as my own Mm -hmm. while also understanding that there would be different perspectives and I think that that's just true of of anyone um, and their experience and I think that the people who really love me including my parents are accepting of that and happy. So to now say a line that you will and everyone in this room will have heard 480 million thousand times you shot to fame overnight in 2014 when you starred in Blurred Lines a music video by Pharrell and Robin Thicke which has had over 720 million views on YouTube you write that you were grateful for that platform but resentful and disorientated to be forever tethered to a controversial song and it made you feel passive you write you signed up to movies you didn't have any interest in modelled for brands that you thought were lame. It's such a revelatory and I found stunning ambivalence that this fame, this wealth could have such a disassociative effect. How much is my body an attempt to metabolize that? I mean, I think it's completely an attempt to metabolize that. But, you know, I think it was more, it was less the video itself and my attachment to it and more that I had a really a way of separating myself from my work and kind of a desire to just make money. I write in that essay in particular, like it wasn't that I had chosen to model because I thought like I'll be a famous model one day. I had let go of that. I'm sure there was a part of me that sort of was like, oh, I, that would be special and amazing. But I had really hardened kind of my myself and my approach to modeling and was thinking of it just about a a means to an end. I graduated high school in 2009, right after the economy had crashed, and it just seemed like an incredible opportunity. So I was really surprised when all of a sudden I had kind of gained access to this other part of benefit, I guess, of modeling, which was fame. And I felt really disoriented because I, I felt like I hadn't you know, there was no no part of the art direction of that particular video or that song that I had had any part of. I was truly, you know, the model for hire who showed up. And I do think that the, the women on that set really kind of made me feel comfortable in a lot of ways. But it was weird to be known for something, you know, the comparison I always make is like, you're a, a songwriter and you have your one hit wonder, well, at least like you wrote that song. It was really strange for me as somebody who had just sort of showed up to work thinking like, oh, there's a good overtime rate today. You know, I didn't know who Robin Thicke was. So I was really excited that Pharrell was there, but I was like, who knows? There's probably a million music videos. So I think the passivity came sort of from the lack of control that I had. And I think, uh, I don't know, it's sort of more about the way we think about making money and that grind and the way that I should shut myself down to wanting to connect the way I made money to being happy or even to just what I was interested in. You weren't just famous, you were, as you write, famously sexy. And then when you got into acting, you were told to act less sexy. So it sort of, you know, it would diminish your reputation as an actor, you'd be taken less seriously. How did you experience that push and pull where you were rewarded financially for being famously sexy, but punished artistically for being a pinup? 
Yeah, it's um, been really interesting, and I write about sort of other women and young actresses in Hollywood who, like, get their break for being, like, having a body and being beautiful, and then they're sort of immediately encouraged to cover up, and it was really confusing for me to kind of navigate that at the age of 21, 22, because I was like, well, I'm getting this attention, and people know my name because of the way I've people have seen my body, but now I should stop doing that, even though that's kind of the thing that's gotten me here, which, you know, is a specific experience to me, but I've seen that. I think women, a lot of my friends at least have had that sort of push and pull of like, you know, knowing the advantages of, of using your sexuality potentially, but also the way that people really judge you for it. And like men even can kind of really like it, but then you're a certain type of girl. And that was a part of my profession, obviously. And the book really explores that ambivalence about your role as a model who's monetized her body in a capitalist system that rewards female beauty. You write, I wanted to be able to have my Instagram hustle selling bikinis and whatever else and being respected for my ideas and politics. Many people deem those things incompatible, that either in life you choose glamour or you choose scholarship. And it's something I've been thinking about ever since I read your essays. Is the book your attempt to resolve that tension or merely explore it? Can it be fully resolved, I wonder? Uh, I don't know. I would love... I think I sort of wrote the book to kind of put the question to the world, like, can it be resolved? And as, you know, a woman, is there a way to really escape the gaze, even in your personal life? And it's been interesting because, you know, when I started writing this, it was like my... My experience is so specific, even with buying myself back, I was talking about paparazzi and photo shoots and things that I wasn't totally sure women would, who weren't working as models um, or using their body in in their work in that way would potentially relate to. And what was really astonishing was how many women did, because also now all women are representing themselves online. You don't have to be a celebrity to be afraid of revenge porn. And, you know, even just the negotiation of what you put on in the morning as a woman and how you want to get dressed. And if you're working in a professional setting, you know, do you want to kind of like dress more like the men or are you, you know, thinking about showing your body in some type of way? And what's that going to be like walking down the street? Is it going to be scary? Is there going to be attention that can feel good if you're kind of feeling bad about yourself, whatever. And it can be all of those things at once, which has been my experience, you know, which has also been very confusing because I think the there's a lot of resistance to that on a way that people talk about um, the female experience. It sort of has to be black or white. It's either good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just hasn't been true for me. So even when I'm talking about like selling bikinis, um, it's, you know, it feels... Uh, you know, it doesn't feel to me as a, like a contradiction because I'm still sort of exploring what's exploitation, what's control, where does commodifying your image, what does even power look like? Um, that's sort of one of the larger questions of the book is what is empowerment? Is it fame? Is it money? Is it influence? Is it a way that you feel? Is it a type of fulfillment? Um, And, you know, I know that there's obviously a standard definition of empowerment, but I think we use that word so lightly and I want to have a better understanding of it. But I don't, I don't yet. I actually don't even know what the standard definition is. Is it Mm -hmm. to feel powerful? I think so. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very overused word, isn't it? Mm -hmm. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. 
Um, you're not afraid to admit when you've changed your mind or where you're not sure about something you thought before. You became a poster girl for choice feminism, a strand of feminism that says that everything a woman chooses is feminist by dint of her making that choice or being able to make that choice. Now you write, you've come to see that position as defensive. Where do you stand now? I think that, um, first of all, I, I really hope that, you know, more people kind of talk about the way that their ideas and understandings evolve. Um, mm. It's so important because as a culture, we're constantly evolving. But I think that people are often hesitant to sort of say like, well, this is the way that I've changed my mind because it, it can be a little embarrassing. But I, I do, I like think that's the most important thing in life is to evolve and to change your opinions as, as you have more experience or you're, you become more informed. So for me, there was a lot of defiance and sort of believing in choice feminism. I think it came not only from modeling and sort of feeling kind of protective of the way that I felt when I was saying, like, here's my body world and, you know, it's my choice and um, I feel good and whatever. It was really more of a response to kind of the shaming I'd experienced, even going back to middle school of the vice principal snapping my bra strap or, you know, checking the length of my skirt with whatever and feeling singled out in an uncomfortable way that made me felt feel very embarrassed of my sexuality even before I understood what sex was. Like I really, I was, you know, 12 and it was kind of this very like you need to change the way you present yourself even though it was just a natural sort of evolution of puberty and becoming a woman. So there was this defiance um, that had that had built up and then obviously mm -hmm. becoming a model. So, you know, when I look back at when I was talking about that stuff, I do, I understand where I was coming from, but what I would say has changed is a much larger understanding of power dynamics and the culture that we live in in general. Um, it's really hard to say that you're dressing for yourself or just to feel good for yourself when we've been conditioned to sort of know what we think looks good for so long. Mm -hmm. um, like, what? where does the male gaze stop and where does your own, like, I'm doing it for myself, things start. I don't have an answer to that, and I wish there were more kind of conversations about that. Um, but I think that that's really the clear evolution for me, and something I feel very definitely strong about, is the same way we kind of talk about casual sex and dating with women. Like, oh, well, you know, women should just be more like guys, and you know, pay for the bill and, you know, have casual sex, but it's just not that simple because there are power dynamics at play that are much more complicated. Totally. And I think that a lot of people are afraid the internet doesn't really reward changing your mind. Mm. You know, it's this whole idea that you have to be very authentic on social media and... <laughs> Ironically, what would be really authentic is if every single day a woman was changing her mind because that's yeah. what it is to be mm -hmm. evolving. Mm -hmm. But then that makes you look inconsistent. So I think there's a real bravery, um, especially for someone who is in your position of fame to be saying, well, no, you know, I think I was being a, a bit defensive then and this is what I, I think now, knowing that, as you say, there is that kind of shame attached, like, oh, she changed her mind, she regrets it. But it's not about regret. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's um, so important that kind of culturally we allow for that because mm -hmm. I think there is this sort of sense of, like, you're on this side or you're on that side. Mm -hmm. You're right or wrong, you understand the language, um, like, how, you know, kind of like your woke card. Um, and, you know, especially when it comes to ideas like empowerment and whatever, that's such... I don't know. I also just think we need to be more open about the way that our personal experiences impact our politics, especially as women. And that's sort of why the book is, you know, really so. It, I mean, of course, I'm talking about these ideas, but it, it really is just about my personal experiences and often the contradictions that, that came with them. Over the course of the essays, you reveal the modeling industry's infuriating and insane obsession with a woman's weight. Every time you lose weight, you book more work. How have you navigated that expectation with your body, the knowledge that in modeling that is all you are, a body? I'm still navigating it. It's really bizarre, you know, now to look back at experiences and how rude people were to me about my body and my weight and you know I think you know at the time and even now I sort of have this understanding that they were looking at my body as a tool and mm -hmm. they were kind of angry with me for not showing up with 
the right tool. And, you know, the industry of modeling exasperates so many experiences I think women have in general of sort of like, you have to have this agreeable sort of attitude and understanding of your position to continue to work. So, you know, the idea is that you're extremely replaceable and there'll be another girl who'll come around and won't complain about, you know, the snide comment or inappropriate touching or anything like that. And, you know, as somebody who was really driven by the potential upside financially that I could get from modeling, I really learned to be good at my job, which meant being extremely agreeable, kind of really being aware of how I looked and my appearance and my weight as well. It's really interesting what you say where it's just kind of accepted because you are a tool rather than, well, you're just a body rather than a brain. And I was thinking recently, I used to be a fashion journalist and how bizarre it was that when you were backstage, the models would be expected Mm -hmm. to just get naked to change into their looks because why would they have any modesty, you know, their models? Mm -hmm. And I think that's changing now, like a lot of... Back. Oh, really? You would know more than me to be fair. <laughs> no, I had it heard it was changing. No. And these girls are really young. Like, I say girls mm-hmm. intentionally. Um, and, yeah, there's this sort of, like, you kind of stand in a big open room, and there's strangers who are dressing you. And, you know, yeah, they strip. I mean, and that's kind of, it is sort of an attitude of, like, well, that's that's your job and that's the tool you've brought. But I think that it led me, I mean, I didn't even realize it until... I sort of was writing the book and realizing like there's a disassociating that's happening for me in these experiences and even kind of trying to be really professional and proud and be like, this is my body and like kind of like come at me. Um, and it made talk about lack of boundaries. Yeah. I think, I mean, it was really interesting to me. You were like, it hasn't changed. And I, I sort of have a feeling that it's the same about how we talk about how, you know, it's all about individuality now and you know Mm. people are booked for looking different and I wonder how far have we come from that I mean both of us you're a little bit younger than me but both of us kind of were becoming teenagers or teenagers during that uh double zero sort of early Mm. noughties kind of phenomenon obsession not really sure which and we say that we're way past that now Mm. as someone that works in the industry do you think we have come way past or is it just um lip service I mean, I think it's so difficult because in a lot of industries, you would say representation in that way isn't enough. You need to have, and I do feel that way. I think a lot of fashion companies like put kind of this really diverse group of beauty ideals out into the world and then don't represent it internally. It's still like all white people, for example, um, running these companies. But, you know, I just think beauty standards just kind of evolve. It's like now everybody's getting BBLs and, you know, like, I don't know that... Do you want to translate for the audience? Oh, Brazilian (laughs) butt lift. Um, One every 20 seconds in the States. Yeah. Fastest growing surgery of, Mm. like, all time. And it's actually really painful. Um, My TikTok has a lot of BBL stuff on it, interestingly. I don't know. I mean, I imagine it's very painful. Yeah. um, And it'll be like women kind of being like, I haven't been able to sit for three weeks. Um, And yeah, no, nobody was getting BBL surgeries and, you know, and that at that rate when we were in high school. They were getting lipo though. Right. Because I've been rewatching The Swan. Oh, Do you remember that show? It's like extreme plastic surgery where these girls aged like 25 would be like, make me over. They would have like 25 five surgeries like turn at once. me into a Barbie essentially right they all look the same yeah. partly because they all had the same haircut I am digressing but anyway lipo no. they all had mm. lipo all of them had lipo and brow lifts but none of them had anything done to their bum whereas mm. now it is all bum and fillers yeah I guess I just feel I'm hopeful that you know I'm, I'm obviously not a young girl kind of like taking in these different <clears throat> images but I do think that ultimately like the truth is in our culture, women are taught that the way that they look matters. And in my experience, that has also been true. I've obviously gained a lot of influence because of I rode sort of a wave of being a model. Um, And, you know, I think that it's just sort of like, what do I need to look like? And I don't know Mm. how, if that's something we can solve, even just by having kind of a diverse 
group of women out front. We're still sort of idolizing a certain group of women. And just in our homes and in our life, like we see it, you know, we see the ways that women are rewarded for the way they look because a lot of men are granting them the power and they do care about the way they look. So it's the reality of a a much larger system. I don't think it's as simple as just sort of saying like, now we think this is beautiful or we think everything's beautiful. It's um, so much more complicated than that because of the power structures. Also, I kind of feel like aspiration will always exist. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, there will always be something that's the new, that's the new goal. But speaking of influence, which you just mentioned, you have almost 30 million followers on Instagram, which is a mind-boggling amount of followers. We are all aware of the dopamine hit you get from mm-hmm. posting something on social media, whether you have 20 followers or almost 30 million. And you're really honest about how good it feels to get over a million likes on a picture. But this is validation on a scale that most people will never know. Does it feel precarious? Do you have a desire to uncouple from that or does it feel necessary to your job? So it's complicated. I have a complicated relationship with social media, which I think we all do. At first, it was sort of a place where I felt like I could have agency and control and assert my identity and build a career in a way that, you know, models never in the 90s, they didn't have that kind of power. They couldn't dictate like, this is a picture I like or a picture I don't like. So I felt like, oh, I'm a kind of savvy businesswoman for the way that I'm representing myself online. And then, of course, you start relying on that validation. And, you know, I think everyone knows the experience. You don't need 30 million. You could have 30 followers. And you're like, I thought I looked good. Why did this only get five likes? And then you're like re-examining it and kind of questioning it. And it's such a slippery slope, especially for me, because it has been tied to my income. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's all kinds of demographics that companies will look at and say like, oh, is she, does she have good engagement? Is she getting those likes? So absolutely, I want to disengage from that. And I definitely am making, I mean, now that I have a son and have been doing this book tour, I feel like there's a part of me that just doesn't have the same kind of interest in it. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I think the feature of turning off the likes on Instagram is really nice. I think that that should just be across the board. I really do. So do I. Yeah. Um, So, you know, it's evolving, but like, no, of course, sometimes it feels really great to be like, oh, it was a hit. Like, people liked that picture. Of course. It feels good. I think turning off the likes as well. People often talk about how it's, oh, it's good if you can turn off the likes as the people posting. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think something happens in your head when you scroll past something that has lots of likes. It either Mm -hmm. makes you want to be part of that club or you hate it because it's so popular. Like, it's a weird... I, I don't think social media is a net bad, but I think that the kind of that feedback loop. I mean, I don't think there should even be like comments, but I know that that was is really depressing to lots of people. No, I agree. And it's actually interesting you say that because when I turn off the likes on a photo, it gets less likes because people don't likes feel like they're likes. engaging in something. Yeah, oh, they want to be sort of a part of it. And I mean, I get it. I mean, I, again, like... I'm not, I'm talking about this as somebody who also consumes media and likes things and doesn't like things and, you know. I just like everything. I download Instagram about once a week and I just like everything I come across. I go onto like friends' profiles so and it's nice. like all of it and they're like, whoa, what's happened? <laughs> That's and cute. then I go That's... away again for like a week. That's good. I was struck by something you said in a podcast interview recently that for you, and it, this didn't occur to you until after the book had come out, that the book is the muse trying to become the artist Mm. and that the essays are your opportunity to take control and to feel less powerless. I'm really interested in that female millennial relationship Mm. with control and I think it's intensified because we live in a world that feels so much more chaotic. Mm. I don't know if it necessarily is but it feels like it is. Do you think it's something our generation are heavily invested in because there are so many lenses now Mm -hmm. through which to represent yourself or be represented which are then only exacerbated by fame? Yeah, um, definitely. And I think that, you know, control can feel like power or empowerment. And that's sort of something that 
that differentiation has been something I've really kind of evolved um, my understanding around. Like even, you know, kind of having control with Instagram is a great example. Like I would have said, okay, I don't know if it's like an act of feminism to post like a a picture that I know is going to get a lot of likes maybe of my body, but it does feel like some type of control after, you know, my iCloud has been hacked and there's been so many pictures that I don't want of myself in the world. Like this feels of a way of sort of being like, no, look at this one and, and getting some kind of power back. Again, this word is tricky. Um, but I do think definitely there are so many lenses and there's so many opportunities for what can feel like control. And that's again, like, I think that's why choice feminism was appealing to me at one point, because it made me feel like, well, I don't have to, I can just live my life in a certain way without sort of having all these other factors in my mind about um, the world we live in. And, you know, it's kind of depressing to like turn that off um, and realize that, you know, maybe you don't have as much control as you, as you want. But as far as the muse becoming an artist, it wasn't until honestly, relatively recently, like the book had been done um, for quite a while. I think when I was recording the audiobook, I sort of realized that I'd always had this desire to become somebody who made things. And I think it was one of the reasons that it was really unfulfilling for me to just be this one-dimensional Emily, even online or just as a model. Um, and I, I kind of loved the idea. I, I write about like famous muses in the past in the book a little bit because I think that there's such a at least I had this sense of what an honor to be a muse like to be kind of like have statues made of you Um, traditionally women would have that or paintings and then you kind of realize like they're given no credit there's no nobody regards them really with respect and we don't know even know their names generally and I realized that I had never wanted to be that. I'd always wanted to be somebody who made things. Mm-hmm. And that had also always been my plan was to kind of do this as a way to, to have the time, have, you know, money means freedom, means time to do what you actually want to do, which was to make things. Um, and kind of funny enough, I ended up doing that maybe much later than I had imagined. I feel like if you'd asked my 19-year-old self, I would have said, I'd like to be making things at the age of 22. But um, I think that writing the book has been a way of turning into artist rather than muse. And that that does, that, I don't know, you know, again, how to define empowerment, but that feels like the closest thing I've ever known to empowerment was, was creating something and, and writing a book. I think uh, you obviously write about um, abuse in Buying Myself Back, your essay for the cut, but I still think that people reading My Body will be surprised at um, the amount, time and time again when you have been taken advantage of or just plain assaulted by men. Um, and it's sad and it's shocking, but it's not surprising to read because we obviously hear about it again and again in the female experience. In Buying Myself Back, you write about the photographer Jonathan Leder, Leder, don't know how to say his name, don't really care, um, who published a book of pictures he took of you without permission and how he abused you in his house. You write about your agents who smirk about or gossip about what they think is your sex life, Robin Thicke, when he touched you drunkenly without permission on the set of Blurred Lines, um, which was then glossed over on set, and a boy you dated as a teenager who raped you. Was it cathartic writing about these incidences, traumatizing, or both? Well, hearing them laid out like that... I know, sorry. (laughs) Reading them out like that was a bit full on. No, no. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think I was writing about sexual assault when I was writing about these experiences, and I actually, even initially when the cut essay came out, I felt, like, very nervous when people started using that language, um, because there are so many kind of very specific connotations to that. And even as a woman who's speaking out, um, I think like it becomes this idea of like you picture some woman being like cutting herself open and bleeding and pointing fingers at people. And I didn't want that to be what happened. I wanted people to read the whole essay and understand like how I felt in every second. And in some ways, maybe even say like, no, actually you did something wrong. I think there was a desire for, for, for that as well. And I just was writing about experiences that I had shame around and felt genuinely confused by. 
and again was sort of looking for where I had made mistakes. And it was less about kind of naming anything or calling anyone out. It was more about trying to understand how those things had happened. And, you know, what's interesting is like even kind of hearing that list of, of different experiences I've had, I still don't think like, oh, those bad guys. I really sort of feel like we were both, all those people and myself, um, were victims of a culture that made them feel insecure, made them feel like they had to grab power back, um, didn't respect women's boundaries and bodies. And I also, you know, as a, as a young girl, didn't know how to assert what I wanted and say no. Um, and consent, I mean, I think we have such an evolving kind of understanding of consent. It is so complicated. It's not as simple as, as yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think for me, it's, it's more about understanding the framework. I don't believe that there are good men and bad men. I think that we live in a very specific culture that allows for abuse, and sometimes it happens. And people do things that they shouldn't do because they're not aware of how they're hurting other people. Or maybe they are, but I don't, I don't believe in sort of the idea of bad men and good men. When uh, Jonathan Leader was asked about the book of pictures that he had no legal right to. He said, this is the girl that was naked in a Robin Thicke video. You really want someone to believe she is a victim. And it's astonishing that he thought that kind of flavor of victim blaming would fly in 2020, 2021. Um, but there is still this really pervasive and pernicious idea that if you don't want it, don't pose in a bikini. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can't, you can't have both things. Mm-hmm. How do you actively try and subvert that kind of... I mean, ironically, it is a line in Blurred Lines. Mm-hmm. You know you want it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, oh, no, you're pretending you don't, but you do, you really do. Um, how much do you try and subvert that? Well, it's really interesting because, I mean, first of all, he said that to the fact checker who was calling him from the magazine to sort of say, like, here's what's in this essay. Do you have any statements, anything? And that was what he gave them to sort of do what they wanted with. And immediately when I heard it, I basically felt sick to my stomach. Like, I didn't at all think, like, what an asshole. I felt, like, awful about myself. And it was the editor that I was working with. It was at her encouragement that we actually put it in the essay. And I'm really glad we did, even though sort of my gut was not to. Really? Yeah, because um, I was, I still felt ashamed. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it's funny because now people talk about that piece of it. And yeah, I'm just glad that we put it in. Um, But no, I do think that there's, it's really interesting to even watch how women kind of use that language around other women and, you know, saying the internalized misogyny of like, well, she was wearing that skirt or she posted that online. Um, Of course, she's had these experiences. I think that's such, so, so dangerous. I do think it's internalized misogyny. And I think it often just turns women off to other women, which, you know, we already have this kind of sense of scarcity as women that, you know, you have to kind of compete with other women to get the man, that there can't be two of you doing the same thing, interested in the same thing, that you have to be kind of special. Um, And it's the way that women often bond with each other, sort of being like, oh, we're different than her. And that really scares me because I don't think it's that, I think it's related to that comment from Jonathan, actually. So I personally, you know, one of the things that's been really hugely important to me in the last couple of years is making a very conscious effort because it goes against my instincts to not judge other women and to not bond with other women about judging other women <laughs> um, because I do think it's just it's it falls right into that slut shaming it falls right into um, this divisive kind of way of thinking that ultimately doesn't lead to any kind of progress yeah absolutely There's an extremely affecting bit where you write that no matter how far you have come, you'll never truly be free of those men who abuse you, whether verbally or physically. Um, After your husband's agent verbally diminishes you at a party, you cry, I hated that my husband was connected to these men. How do you feel now about the industry that your husband works in, that you worked in? Can you see yourself going back to movie making? So... um 
it kind of goes back to the like, no bad, not all men are bad, or mm-hmm. there's no bad and good men. It's sort of all men are both bad and good. Um, I think that you know the that industry in particular is especially Hollywood. I mean, I think there's something in fashion that's very like, yes, we're an industry that's about beautiful women and that's that. And it's all about images and runway and selling clothes. I think that sort of Hollywood, I, I think they kind of trick themselves into believing that it's something else. And so they're, mm. they, they act really differently. And even around the Harvey stuff, it was sort of this feeling of like, oh, a couple bad eggs and you know, we kind of knew, but we were just trying to get these girls, you know, have them be able to win an Oscar, you know, um, this sort of sense of like, oh no, we're, we're art makers, whatever. And I, that really bothers me. I really hate that. I think that it allows for a lot of, um, men who have been guilty in partaking in abusive women or like not protecting them to just kind of shrug off this stuff. So I have, I would say I'm triggered by by agents and by Hollywood. Um, that being said, it's amazing to see how many women are really finding their footing. And it's unfortunate, it's, you know, the sort of attitude of like, oh, wow, like women want to go see movies that like aren't just rom-coms or whatever and movies that are made by women. Um, so, you know, I think that if I went into movie making, which I'm definitely interested in because I like making things. And I think that film can be such a powerful way of communicating ideas and telling stories. I'd want to work with as many women as possible. For better or for worse, I have always been drawn to exposure, you write. But exposure as a model and an actress is different to exposure as a writer. Mm. How have you found the experience of publishing a book? We were just talking about this. Um, It's different. I think that a lot of my friends who are writers sort of warned me like this is going to be so brutal, your deepest, darkest secrets, you know, like people will come up to you and say, I'm so sorry this happened to you and, you know, and even ridicule your experience and your part in it and it can be really scary. But I do think for me, the nuance that I was able to capture with this type of exposure felt so much more gratifying and intentional also like I I understand I really knew why I decided to publish this book which was to ask questions and hopefully to connect to other women and even to men and make them you know have compassion and an understanding for for the female experience in a way that it can be very hard to do so it it's been really bizarre like even just talking about the house I grew up on, on a stage in front of, you know, 700 people feels really crazy. But I think it's so much more gratifying because it came with nuance in a way that I've just never been able to have. So I'm not disassociating right now. I'm, I'm here, which is, which is nice. It's obviously had a tremendous response. Um, I've never read so many reviews of an essay collection Have you engaged with any of the criticism? Yes, I've engaged with all of it. (laughs) Um, I'm ashamed. I'm not ashamed to say. Um, It was very funny. So many different writers kept saying to me, like, you can't read the reviews. You can't read the reviews. And I'd be like, oh, so what did you do? You didn't read the reviews? And they'd be like, no, I read every single one of them. (laughs) And I was like, who are these Buddhist monks that are living in some hole where they don't read their press? I'd love to meet them, and I'd love to be enlightened. Um, I mean, I think particularly for me, I was interested in starting a conversation, so I kind of was... I wanted to hear feedback. I wanted people to say to me, like, no, I feel this way, or yes, but, or um, I relate to this, and this makes me think about something else. Like, I wasn't writing something to put... wasn't publishing this book to put something into the, the you know, world and say, like, that's it, hands are clean. I want the conversation to continue. I want my evolution of thinking to continue. I want to ask questions. So I think it was one of the reasons that... I didn't feel particularly affected by the press. Um, I mean, I had one day where I like laid in bed and was like, <laughs> I can't read anymore. Um, but in general, I felt, you know, also luckily it was overwhelmingly positive and just so amazing to see particularly um, readers respond to it and 
watch my DMs really change from like creepy men saying scary things to like young women telling me their stories. That was really great. And, you know, I just love the idea of like somebody Googling Emily Ratajkowski body and they get served with a book of essays. Um, it feels good. <laughs> it feels good. Um, so yeah. I Is think, that why you did it? That's quite cunning. No, but it's, <laughs> I've thought about it now. I'm like, oh, they might see all the other stuff, but they're also maybe going to maybe buy this book. So that's exciting. I think that's quite clever. How do you engage generally with feedback culture? I mean, I was really interested hearing you say then that you read your DMs Mm. because most people who have the kind of following that you have don't, you know, they're like, I can't, I don't read comments, I don't read DMs, I don't, you know, I don't engage with any of it at all. Like, are you, is it a reciprocal relationship that you have? So I used to absolutely not read my DMs. And then when the book came out, um, it just changed because it was a nice place to go um, and sort of see what people were saying and feel connected to people who are reading the book in a way that I just, particularly in COVID and even this experience, I'm not able to kind of, you know, know what you all thought about the book. So it's my way of doing that. Um, And, you know, I don't plan on doing it forever, but I think that that's just been particularly nice experience. And, you know, also the book is done. So there isn't a feedback that can kind of impact my feeling. I worked extremely hard on the book. It, you know, every word was talk about control and exercise and control, you know, writing, you are, you are choosing what details, you're choosing what words, how you're structuring these ideas. So now you sort of have to just like release control, which is, the ultimate way of really being okay um, is sort of letting go of control. I was going to say, how does that feel as someone that is very honest about desperately trying to Mm. regain some control? How does it feel to then be, I mean, you're here talking about it, which Mm -hmm. is an element of control, but it's also Mm -hmm. out in the world. You can't track it. You can't follow it. Yeah, I think there was something really crazy about even just the object of a book being printed because I had been working on it on a... um, digitally for so long and I didn't have this sense of permanence it was always just a ever-changing document that I was editing and working mm-hmm. on and when I finally got it in print there was something so beautiful about the object like it being like it will live on forever in this way maybe there's one or two typos please forgive me I didn't um, spot any actually and I'm really I'm that person who reads the uh-huh. menu and is like well that, yeah fine. but nobody reads their own you know you read your own book hardest um But, uh, you know, it's going to live in forever, however, as this thing that existed as a moment in time. And I think I just sort of accepted that. Will there be a My Body too? I don't know. I think I might have to write fiction next. Watch this. Oh, look, there was a murmur. (laughs) Um, uh, How did, to go back to feedback, how Mm. did that feedback change when you had a baby? Because Mm. obviously when a woman, particularly a woman in the public eye has a baby, there's like a whole new level of Mm. commentary. And I was really struck by something you posted, I think on Instagram stories a few months ago, when I was working on an audio documentary about Britney and everyone was saying, you know, how could people shame Britney like that? How could they talk about her mothering like Mm. that? And you said, well, this is happening to me every day. Every time you post a picture of you and your baby, it will make headlines and it will make a lot of headlines. Mm-hmm. Um, has motherhood changed what and how you share? So it's kind of, it's evolving like every day because at one point there were paparazzi. I wasn't sharing pictures of my son's face and then there were paparazzi pictures of my son on the internet and it sort of felt like, again, like a way of controlling the narrative was sort of saying like, no, these these are the pictures that I feel okay with being out in the world, not the ones that were taken without our consent. I think like motherhood for me has interestingly been a wonderful exercise in releasing control. Yeah. Um, because I understand that trying to control everything around my son is only going to stress him out. And I'm so not interested in that, um, that I've kind of had to let go of control in a lot of ways. And I know personally the kind of mother that I am. So oddly, the thing that impacts me the least is commentary on on the way that I parent. Just because I know that no one really, 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 they can't, they have no right to say that. Um, and I know what I'm doing. So That's so nice to hear. It's really lovely to hear that that's just not not something that touches your relationship because I can imagine that for a lot of women that would be 
incredibly corrosive, especially if it's your first child mm-hmm. and you know your son is still a baby. So, I'm but it really feels like it would be at his expense. Um, yeah, for me to be an insecure mother would be at his expense, and that's sort of where I draw the line. I refuse to for him to be impacted in that way. Yeah, I think that's a really good decision. I mean, this is right now. Check me, and I don't know. <laughs> this is you <laughs> with him at eight months. Yes, yes. <laughs> And to bring it back to the title of the book, before we open the floor for some questions, how has your life changed whilst writing the book? And how has motherhood... These are two completely different questions. I'm riveted how I put them into the same one. I'll just go with one of them. To bring it back to the title of the book, um, how did motherhood change your relationship with your body and with yourself? Um, Well, the last chapter is called, or essay is called, Releases. And... Interestingly, it initially started to be kind of a meta essay that totally didn't work where I was writing about writing and the release of writing and even publishing something and, again, releasing control. And it felt like connected to me to release of anger and ultimately to the experience I had of giving birth to my son and learning to trust my body, which I had never had that experience before. I'd always sort of thought of my body as a a tool that I controlled. And when you're pregnant, you wake up every day and you're like, okay, I hope that my baby's doing okay. You're not, you know, checking in with a doctor all the time. And there's a lot of trust that you have to place into your body that, you know, that, that it's going to do what it's meant to do to take care of both you and your unborn child. And I was nervous about that because, you know, forget even just the physical changes, but I meant just the safety really mm-hmm. scared me. And I'd go for doctor's visits and kind of be like, that's it. You're not going to see me for another month, you know, like, <laughs> oh my God. Um, so as I got closer to birth, I, I started to to really think about again, like what was going to be the easiest way for my body to to relax. And I knew that it was in me trusting my body, which again, I had just never had that relationship to it. And it was really through the birth of my son that I gained that kind of appreciation and also just like talk about loss of control and respect for this like ancient mechanism that is childbirth. I mean, it's incredible. It blew, it still blows my mind. I can't believe that it's, you know, I, I think I say in the book, it's both the most, you know, ordinary and extraordinary thing that just happens all every second. Um, and, you know, when I was writing about birth in particular, I, I didn't even realize it, but there were moments where I said no. Um, and, you know, there was a kind of a, a doctor who I have a complicated relationship with medical professionals feeling like they know my body better than me and that I kind of don't. And I was like, no, I'm doing this. And I was able to. And that kind of letting go of control and that trust for my body and appreciation for it as, as more than a tool, really. It's not with me every day, but it definitely, that experience hugely impacted the way I feel about my body. Yeah, that's a really nice note to end this part on. We've now got 10 minutes for questions. Both Emily and I need glasses and aren't wearing glasses, so mm-hmm. yes, this could be interesting. So raise your hands. Can you see anyone's hand up? Okay, yes. Um, well, that helps a bit. Yeah. Hello, my question is for Emily. Obviously, I just love the book. I just want to say that first off. Thank you. Um, one of the things that happened a few months ago was obviously the excerpt from Blurred Lines was leaked, and obviously everyone had this huge reaction to it about obviously what you said about Robin Thicke. Mm. Obviously that must have been hard for you because you just wanted everyone to read it in full. But did you expect that might happen had it not been leaked? Did you think people would have still had that reaction had it been read in full the first time round? So I didn't want to write that essay. I had initially... First of all, thank you. (laughs) It's very sweet. It's nice to hear that. Um, but I, um, I didn't, I had kind of hidden that anecdote about what had happened on set in another essay. And my editor said to me, I mean, this is so, this speaks to so much of what you're talking about, the evolution of your thinking that you hadn't ever talked about this moment that happened on set. Like, why don't you, why don't you write about it more? And I went through several drafts and I realized that I was kind of agonizing over it because I knew that it was going to be, you know, leaning into this thing that I didn't want to be known for and that it would be turned into this moment of, you know, Emily Ratajkowski is capitalizing off of 
her moment of fame by, you know, revising history, which was obviously so uh, such an oversimplification of, and I knew that that was what was going to happen. And my hope was, well, okay, actually, um, the essay was meant to be published ahead of the book. And after the news leaked, there was this push to kind of edit. It's quite a long essay, or longer. Um, and they wanted to edit it down, and I just sort of decided that I didn't want it to be published at all. If people wanted to read the whole thing in entirety, then they could read the book. And I just knew, I talk about letting go of control, that there'd be a huge population of people who would always say, oh yeah, didn't that girl say you know that about it ten, eight years later or whatever? And I've just sort of accepted that that's going to be, and hopefully maybe one day they'll pick up the book and understand that I was trying to say something more. Hi, firstly, thank you for such an honest and thought-provoking chat. My question is, if you ever had a daughter, what piece of advice or thinking would you want to instill in her? That's such a good question. Um, I've said this before and it kind of got taken out of context, but I did have a little moment of kind of relief when I found out I was having a boy because I realized I didn't have to kind of think about this at least immediately and what I would teach a daughter and how I would teach her how to navigate this world. The best answer I can give is that I would want my daughter to understand the culture as a whole in a way that I did not and to understand power dynamics in a way that I did not so that she can then decide how she wants to represent herself, decide how she wants to protect herself, you know, in her way, um, having as much kind of information as possible. I think that a lot of these things are really taboo and I know in my experience, my parents were afraid to be the one to kind of introduce things to me because they thought I was still a child. Meanwhile, the world was kind of throwing me a million things. And um, I think just being as open as possible with, with my daughter would, would be the goal. I, I really enjoyed your book. I read it within Thank a week. You. I couldn't put it down. I, I put my studies to the side and just read my book, your book um, almost immediately. I've never re- I, I read, it, read it almost as a diary and I felt really emotional reading it because... When I, as I read it, I, I, it related to my own life because when I grew up thinking I was, oh, really wanted to go into intellectual and stuff. The minute I got boobs, like, as every woman does, people start looking at you differently. Mm-hmm. And now when I talk to people, it's like, yes, I've got a master's degree, I'm doing a master's. People go, oh, you are. And go, oh, they look at my, bo- they look at my face, look at my body, and they go, mm-hmm. oh, you've got your boobs out, but mm-hmm. why are you doing that? I'm like, I am more than a body. And my question to you was, shouldn't, people be taught in schools that yeah you can be intellectual yes and you can Mm. enjoy your image not just for men's satisfaction but for yourself like I've always struggled with it personally like people have always looked at me like that way and I think look I'm actually really smart like when I read your book I got a whole new level of respect for you I'm like you're just one of the smartest women best books I've ever read like oh thank you so much that's what that's what my question was yeah I do think that there's so much of um, a sort of an attitude around you know that you kind of have to be a certain type of woman and stick to that lane and I think that's hopefully won't exist in the future and that that will help with the way that women kind of have to over calculate and think about the way they're presenting themselves constantly and you know in order to be received a a particular way I hope that that changes. I was wondering how your like feminism is intersectional Mm -hmm. um, and how you like practice that or like if you do yeah thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, even writing the book, I sort of had this, a lot of moments where I felt really aware of my position in the world as a white, attractive, thin woman who meets a certain type of beauty standard. And, you know, knowing and hoping that women would connect, but also having a deep understanding, or at least trying to have a deep understanding um, of what women of color go through. I think that intersectionality is so important. It wasn't something that I, you know, was raised with. I was raised by a a feminist mother, but it wasn't as much of a part of the conversation. And, you know, really what I hope to do as much as I can is to encourage women who don't have the platform that I do, who don't have the privilege that I do, to tell their stories. And I recognize that, you know, I have a tremendous amount of privilege to even be able to publish this book, but I just hope that it encourages those other women. And I think we have to all bear that in mind. Obviously, 
intersectionality, you know, race wasn't a huge factor in my experience, but I do open the book with WAP, (laughs) with Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, and the way that they were talked about after that video, of course there was this, you know, a a very large audience that felt like they were so awesome and amazing. And then there were tons and tons of people who said what not only that what they were doing wasn't empowering or, you know, said all kinds of things. There was also a racial aspect to that that I will just never know. But I'm I, I think it's really important to consider. Okay, last question. First I want to congratulate you for being so brave of exposing all these um, personal problems. Thank you. And I have two questions for you. The first one is we know the steps that you had in your career. The model one now is a book writer. And I want to know if you actually know where you're going. Um, where do you see yourself in five or in ten years? And the second question is how do you keep evolving? Is there someone you follow? Is there uh, an example that you have? Something that keeps you chasing? Thank you. Definitely to continue to make things, whether that be writing fiction or making films. I think that, you know, that's what I figured out to be the most fulfilling and, again, potentially empowering um, thing I've ever done in my life. So I want to continue to make things, film, fiction, nonfiction, whatever that might be. Um, being a creator is really important. And then, you know, as far as people that I, I follow, one of the things that I did and, you know, kind of as a way to test the waters was just slide into writers' DMs <laughs> that I admired. A lot of people who had no idea who this girl with these followers was um, and just said sort of, can I email you my work? And, uh, you know, some people just didn't respond at all or said like, yeah, sure, and then never read it. And then there were a few that did read it. And those people have become mentors to me, um, in particular, Stephanie Dandler. But I think that, you know, in general, as somebody who is interested in lots of different mediums, it's about kind of finding the people that you respect and, and paying close attention to what they've done and even, you know, trying to use whatever position you have to talk to them directly. Um, that's what kind of my approach has been recently. Thank you very much to everyone thank who you so has come much. tonight. And thank you to thank Emily. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was wonderful. This week's podcast starred Emily Ratajkowski and was presented by Pandora Sykes. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, Dana Outcult, and Esme Bright. And the editor was John Doughty. We will be back on the 4th of January with more in-depth interviews with the most exciting thinkers of our time. Until then, you can find more than 100 past interviews in our archive. And if you take out a membership to our digital subscription service, HowTo Plus, you can also access more than 400 past live stream and live events. We also offer HowTo Plus subscriptions as a gift for friends and family. And if you're in the UK, you can order this as a physical gift card as well as a digital subscription. Find out more on our website. Until next year, stay safe and well, and thanks for listening.